Well, it's always a joy to have the privilege to fill the pulpit. Our beloved pastor, Ken, and his family are out of town getting some downtime, so I would just encourage you to pray for them, that they would have a good time of rest while they're gone, and that Kelly would be able to keep Ken out of trouble, because apparently they have really good clam chowder up there in Washington. So I told him, eat as much as you want, Ken. Clam chowder is good for you. But let's just pray that they would have a great time and come back refreshed. Well, the title of this morning's message is The Proof of Love. You know, compass is really an amazing tool. I know this is Texas, Boy Scouts. Many of you still probably have your compass that you used when you were a kid. I know I had one, and I tried to trick that thing. I spent hours trying to make that thing do anything but point true north. I would sit there with that compass and go, oh, not fast enough. Spin around in a circle. I was dizzy. It pointed north. And when I got lost backpacking in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California with a bunch of friends in college, 12,000 feet in the mountains, just us and the bears, lost, that compass was the only thing that enabled us to find the trail and get to the lake that we were hiking to. Because no matter how turned around we were, the compass always showed true north. See, the reason why the compass points north is because the needle responds to the magnetic field that is part of the earth's makeup. We know this. The compass is responsive to the very nature of the earth. And so, too, with Christian love. The nature of God is love. And a person who knows God who has been born of God, will respond to God's nature. And so as a compass naturally points north, so too should a Christian who's naturally growing to practice love because love is the very nature of God. And so with that in mind, I'd like for us to turn to a text this morning that exhorts us to this kind of true Christian love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 12 this morning. As you're turning there, and of course this is on your handout, just to give you a little bit of context of the book of 1 John in our text. Again, John wrote this letter to Gentile Christians while he was pastoring a church in Ephesus. And these first century Christians were faced with false teaching that in fact was threatening to destroy the fundamentals of their faith. And so John, in this letter, positively attacks this heresy heresy by reasserting the basics of Christian faith and life. In fact, in 1 John 5.13, we find the theme verse of this book, I write these things, these things is the book of 1 John, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know if you have eternal life? Well, if you pass these tests that I'm going to give you in this book, then you are saved, you are of God. And true Christians will display the characteristics of genuine Christianity and sound doctrine in faith, in love, in an obedience. And so in our text, Christian love becomes the proof that we are truly children of God. So here in 1 John 4, 7 to 12, we are provided with three reasons why Christians should sacrificially love 
other Christians. Let me read 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So the first reason that John gives us why Christians should sacrificially love one another is found in verses 7 to 8. It's this. Love is the essence of God. Notice John begins, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. Again, who's the one another? Specifically, I know the Scripture calls us to love God and love our neighbor, to love the world, but who is John specifically exhorting the Christians to love? To one another, to each other, Christians loving Christians. And notice he starts off by saying, beloved. In the Greek, this literally means one who is dear, one who is loved. And so John here, he demonstrates and gives love before he exhorts them to do the same with one another. He's practicing what he preaches. And what does he say? Let us love one another. This is in the present tense active in the Greek, which simply means it's to be a habitual practice, something that that is characterized in the believer's life, that they are growing to love one another. In fact, we know this is true. 1 John 2, 3 to 6 even confirms this. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. That's harsh. A liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walks. So this, this love needs to be a walking. It needs to be a practical application in the Christian's life, growing. It's not the first time John has talked about this topic of love. Even over in chapter 3, verse 11, we find, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Going all the way back, to the Old Testament, to the prophets. This message hasn't changed. Love. And then in verse 23, this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Well, who's the He? John's saying we need to love each other because He commanded us. Turn back to John 13. John 13, verse 34 the very words of Jesus, John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, 
even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's no surprise here that John is saying, look, Christ, the prophets, they've called us to love. They've called us to love each other. So let's do that. You think, well, why should we love one another? Just because it's a command? Well, notice what John says in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us one another for, here's the reason, love is from God. And then in verse 8, God is love. Since God is the source of love, love, therefore, is inherent in all that God is and all that God does. Now, it's important just to pause for a moment. Think about this with me. Love does not define God. Did you get that? Love does not define God, but in fact, God defines love. Love isn't a cookie cutter that determines who and how God turns out and how He acts. It's the other way around. God is the one that determines what love is and how it functions. This is important. I'm going to illustrate this in just a moment. But notice what the text says. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is what? Born of God and knows God. What does he mean by born of God? Born of God simply meaning that those who have been born again through repentance of their sin, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they share God's divine nature. They're born again, regenerated by the power of the cross, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, even in 2 Peter 1.4, it's the famous passage that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness in the knowledge of Christ, knowledge of God. But in verse 4, Peter says, and we become partakers of the divine nature, this godly nature of love, the moment we become Christians. So we are born of God. And secondly, a child of God knows God. Again, present tense. Why is that important? It doesn't simply mean that I knew God. I made a profession of faith someday back in the past. I I knew God at that time, but I don't really know Him now. Knowledge has much more than just simply understanding of what is true. Because when John is using this, this verb, this idea of knowing God, it's the idea of walking with God in a deep and personal, intimate relationship. Because that's what a child of God does. And the end result is that the Christians will grow to love each other sacrificially as God loves us. And see, the logic of these verses goes like this. If we are united to God through faith in Christ, then we share His nature. And since His nature is love, love then becomes the test of the reality of our spiritual life. Let me say it even simpler. If God is love and we are of God, then we will love like God. Did you get that? If God is love, and we are of God, then we will love like God. You say, well, okay, Chris, fine. We're supposed to love like God, but 
What is this love? What, what is its nature? And again, when you pause for a moment, how does society in the world define love? Do they define it God's way? No. In fact, most of what is called love today bears little to no resemblance to the holy spiritual love of God. You hear words like tolerance and acceptance. Love is tolerating. Love is accepting. You'll see banners and signs declaring, God is love at festivals and marches. As if calling it love will justify the immoral actions of people who want to live their way, not God's. It's all Romans 1.18. Mankind suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They exchange the truth of who God is. And because they don't like that God, and what do they do? They remake God in their own image and exchange that truth. And so they say, God is love. So let me marry whoever I want. Christian, non-Christian. Same sex, doesn't matter. God is love. Is that the love of the Father? Is that the love of God? No. In fact, the love of God is simply this word, and we know it well. I'm not going to spend tons of time on this, but agape. Agape love, which simply means godly or spiritual love. And this is the word that John uses throughout our text. It's either in a verb form or a noun form. It's agape, agape, agape. It's marked by sacrifice. It's defined for us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8. Love is kind. It is patient. Believes all things. Bears all things. It's that whole text. Love is an interest in others. It's a heart of care for others. Agape love is an active love. It's not passive. And it reflects the volitional, steadfast, unmerited Faithful commitment of God to care for us. That is the love of God, agape love. But I think sometimes it's helpful to flesh that out for us a little bit. So I just want to go through, I I chose eight, there's more, but I just chose eight. This is the nature of God's love. If we were to characterize this agape love, what would it be? And I think I put this on your handout so you don't have to get a cramp trying to write all these down. There's nothing more unloving than me giving you a hand cramp. Notice, what is this agape love? It's a volitional love. What does John 3.16 say? Are you unsure? For God so loved the world that he was forced to give because he had to. Is that what it says? You were just so lovely. How could he not? Is that what it says? No. Of his own free volition, he chose to give. Love is a choice, not a feeling first. Secondly, it's a pardoning love. In Colossians 3.19, he loved us first. He forgave us first. Thirdly, it's a proactive love. 1 John 4.19 says what? right here in our text. We love because he first loved us. He took the first step. It's more than an emotion. Fourth, it's a chastening love. Hebrews 12 talks about the son that the father loves. He what? He chastens. He disciplines. Because anything that helps keep me far away from sin is for my own good. And that is the love that the father has for us. 
It's a chastening love. Fifth, it's a visible love. 1 Corinthians 13, love is, and then it lists all of those definitions. Those are all verbs in the Greek. They're visible. Romans 5, 8. In spite of our faults, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, faults everywhere, sin, wickedness, and what did God do? In spite of that, he chose to send Christ as a demonstration of his love. It was visible. Six, it's a long-suffering love. Second Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is patient toward you. His love is patient. It's an unceasing love. Romans eight thirty nine. Church, what can separate us from the love of God? Life, death, angels, principalities, things present, things to come. What can separate us from the love of God? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Because God has chosen to set his unceasing love on you and me. Let that percolate in your heart a little bit. That's the gospel. That's what God has done for you and me, given us the exact opposite of what we deserve. It's an unceasing love. And eight, it's a self-sacrificing love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent a Christmas card with his condolences. I'm so sorry. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. For God so loved the world that he gave who? His only begotten, one of a kind, unique, the only son he had, he gave. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8.9 says that Christ became poor so that you and I could become rich. Of course, these are just a few of the characteristics of God's love that should be growing in our love for one another. You understand that is the love of God. As you look at that list and as you you go, this is what God's love is like. What must happen, Christian, born-again one who knows God, is for you to take your love and say, do they match up? Probably the answer is going to be no, because you're not God. You're not perfect. You still struggle with sin. But at the very least, hopefully, you can say, but I'm growing. I'm growing. My love love more, more closely matches these characteristics of God's love. My love is pardoning. It's volitional. I don't feel like loving sometimes, but I choose to because that's what God did for me. My love has a constructive element. That's one of the ones I left out. Ephesians 5. My love is self-sacrificing. Does that define you? Is that the kind of love that you have for one another? Because if God is love, and if we are of God, then we will love like God. I mean, you've heard someone say, hey, your kids are just like you. You ever heard that? Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes not. Someone came up to me the other day and said, man, your girls are just beautiful. Shelly. Why, your, your, your girls are so kind and patient with one another. Shelly. Wow, you know, your daughter so-and-so, she was really sarcastic. Oh, that's me. Faulty DNA, sorry about that. 
We get this, don't we? Your kids, they look like you. I mean, sometimes I'm watching one of my girls do something, and I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, wait a minute. That's what I do. It's like a little mini-me. It's like looking in the mirror. If I'm a child of God, and if God is love, and again, there's no question God is love. He says he is love. He is love. He demonstrates love then I will take on the traits and characteristics from my heavenly Father. I will bear resemblance to God. As God is love, so too will I love with these characteristics of God's love. And again, we know the root cause. Think about this. Every sin in your life and my life is really self-love. Is that true? Can you come up with any sin in your life that you've ever committed or wanted to commit that wasn't somehow related to self-love? Pride. Me first, self-worship. Let me just give you an example. I'm going to pick on some of the respectable sins. Irritability. Do you know someone who's irritable? You're like, yeah, I'm sitting next to him. What is irritability? What are the manifestations of irritability? Impatience, short-tempered, critical, harsh words, interrupting. I just don't have time for this, right? That's how it comes out, irritability. Not a settled peace and contentment, it's the opposite. Now work backwards with me. Where does that come from? Why do we become irritable? Because I had some desire, some expectation, and maybe even it was a good desire, a good expectation, and these people are not doing it my way. And when they don't do it my way, the right way, or when I say, or how many times do I have to tell you to clean your room? Huh? Are your ears not working? Irritability. Where is that coming from? You didn't do it my way. What is that? Self-love. Wow, thanks, Chris. Now I've got to repent of that. Self-love is everywhere in my heart. Is it in yours? If we practice self-love without repentance, without biblical change, if self-love becomes the pattern unbroken by repentance in our life, then this proves we do not know God and we are not in relationship with God. You say, Chris, where do you get that from? Look at the text. The one who does not love does not know God. That's what he's talking about unbroken patterns of self-love. That is possibly an indication that you are not a Christian. Now, let me quickly follow that up by there are Christians who have assurance and are saved who sometimes struggle with patterns of self-love. I'm not saying that if you struggle with it more than 17 times, sorry, you're going to hell. There can be struggles with these, but again, it's progressive growth to be more like Christ. That's the key here. So the progressive growth of love then is a valid test of true Christian faith which should be revealed in how we live. So the first reason why we should sacrificially love other Christians, love is the essence of God. But there's a second. Love was revealed by Christ. Verses 9 to 11 and specifically in two ways. The first way is found in verses 9 to 10. It's the expression of God's love. 
Notice John continues in verse 9. He says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, because God is love, He must communicate not only in words but in deeds because true love is never static or inactive. It's not passive. How do we know that? Well, He proves it. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That word manifested carries the idea of revealing or showing something that wasn't previously seen or known. Now, think about this with me. Has God's love always existed? Was there ever a beginning of God's love? Will there? Well, no. God is unchanging, eternal. Therefore, His holy and perfect love is also unchanging and eternal. It's always existed because God is love. But at the incarnation of Christ, an incarnation simply means when God sent Christ from heaven, 100% God, and He took on flesh. That's what we mean when we say incarnation, 100% man. When Christ came from heaven to earth and became man, it was fully made known. Because it's one thing for God to tell us with words that He loves us, hey, trust in me. There's coming a Messiah. There's coming a Savior. It's one thing to say those words. But at the incarnation of Christ, it became reality. And so God demonstrated His love for us by physically sending His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to earth and to the cross. And that's what He's talking about here in verse 9. God sent His only begotten one-of-a-kind, unique Son into the world so that we might live through Him, have life in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And notice in verse 10, God's love didn't wait for us to make the first move. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but what? He loved us. You know, I can't help but think of my very first junior high dance it was a horror show. I try to forget it. There we are in the gym. All the boys lined up on one side, all the girls lined up on the other, pointing, giggling, looking at each other, incredibly awkward and uncomfortable. You with me? And what are we waiting for? Who's going to make the first move? Who's going to walk across that gym? Who's going to do it? And so this girl comes and peels off from the group, head held high, walks across and asks a boy to dance. And no, it wasn't me, thanks for asking. Broke my little heart. Pick me, pick me. You know the problem with that illustration? And there is a problem with it. Because it assumes that both sides have the freedom to move. It assumes that, that, that both sides have the volition, the will, the desire to move toward someone else. And see, our self-love imprisons us. We can't. We won't choose to love God on our own. And if I'm not loving God, what reasonable expectation do you have that I would love you? 
if I'm not putting God first. That's why the greatest commandment is to love God first. So that in second, I would love my neighbor as myself. Romans 6 says we're a slave to our sin. And Matthew 6, 24 says that we can't serve two masters. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve money, mammon. And when I serve mammon, what am I really serving? Again, here's the sin of greed, love of money. What is that about? So I can get more so I can give it to you? Is that what the love of money is? No, it's about how this money will make me more comfortable, make me more successful, give me a bigger home, give me more reputation. This is me. It's the love of self. And the word of God, the words of Christ say you can't serve both masters. It's going to be one or the other. There's no middle road. Verse 9 says that God sent his only begotten son into the world. He chose to give his only son. He made the first step because we couldn't. And because God actively made that first move, that's why 1 John 4.19 says we love. Why? How can we love? Because he loved us first. It's the hope of the gospel. And what should be our result when we understand that, Christian? Gratitude. Thankfulness. Nothing can take that love of God away from me. So let me ask you, Christian, is your love passive or is it active? Do you wait to love others until they love you first? Is that evidenced in your marriage? Is that evidenced in the way you work with people, go to school with people? You have your back against the wall, Christian, and say, well, you make the first move, then I'll meet you halfway. Because that's not what God did. In fact, we demonstrate a false love when we love others based on conditions that they must do first. Well, John goes on. In verse 10, he says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's another big word. Propitiation simply means the idea of satisfaction. God had a perfect standard of obedience. Our sin broke that perfect standard. Christ's death on the cross satisfied God's righteous requirements which resulted in our being able to obtain eternal life, all because he loved us first. Christ was God's one-of-a-kind, unique, supreme son who alone satisfied God's requirements for dealing with our sin. And that's what propitiation is. It's simply God expressing his love by sending his son to take our place so that the holy wrath of God would be satisfied. It's amazing that God loved us so much that he didn't hold anything back. He sacrificed his son so that as Ephesians 2, 1 says, those of us who were dead in our sins and transgressions, which was all of us pre-Christ, might have spiritual life. And so Christ's sacrifice for us was the expression of God's love. But then secondly, in verse 11, we have the example of God's love. 
Again, how was love revealed by Christ? Well, it was expressed in verse 9 and 10, and then we get the example in verse 11. Notice John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loved us that much to send His only begotten Son, shouldn't we in turn follow His divine example and love others? Of course, the answer is yes. But we know that because John uses this term, ought. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought, should, must love one another. This word indicates duty. It talks about the correct response. If God did this, the correct response is this. That's the idea of this word. The cross of Christ compels us to love. Again, another way to say this is, because of God's expression of love through Christ's sacrifice, we should follow God's example by loving one another. In fact, Jesus himself said, I already read it in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. What's the example that Christ is saying is the standard? Love them how you feel like it. Love them when they deserve it. Love them when they do what you want them to do. Love them in the good season, run away in the bad. What is Christ saying? Love one another the same way that I have loved you. And according to Ephesians 5, church, how has Christ loved you and me? To death. To death. Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. Is that your love? Is that mine? Will I follow his examples? Will I back up my words with Christ-like love? When Shell and I were dating, and just so you know, I'm going to say this up front, this was a point of contention. You can ask Shelly afterwards. She's still not happy with me. But I decided not to tell her that I loved her until I was ready to put a ring on her finger. In fact, she accidentally told me that she loved me first, and I never let her forget it. And you think, Chris, besides being mean, uh, why did you do that? Well, it's so easy to think you love someone. It's easy to communicate that you love someone. In fact, I had told many girls before, Shelley, I love you. I love you. I love you. And then there came a day to say, yeah, I don't love you anymore. <laughs> it's easy to say it. But what are words without action? They're empty. They're meaningless. So when I finally told Shelly that I loved her, I backed up that with a lifetime commitment expressed in the form of a vow and a diamond ring. We must sacrificially love, not just with words or with emotions, but also with our life, our tears, our sweat, our time, our money, our things, and even our own blood. Some of us might be called to love by being a martyr because this is the example that we have to follow. Love is a willing commitment that goes the distance. So there may be times when you are tempted to let your feelings determine how you love one another. And in that moment, you have to choose to follow God's example. I choose to love you. Because God loved me. 
And even if you never love me, even if you never repent, even if you never do it my way, even if you never clean your room the right way, I choose to love you because that's how God loves me. Love is a commitment. I mean, after all, look at 1 John 3, 16 to 18. 1 John 3, 16 to 18. It says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What does that sound like? Lay down our life? Well, there was a puddle. I laid down on it. You walked over me. Is that what he's saying? No, he's talking about to death if need be. We lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Answer, it's not. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We must practice what we preach. So let me ask you, Christian, when... When's the last time that you have taken or even been willing to take your two weeks of vacation that you get every year and go serve in our VBS or a short-term mission? That's sacrifice, a sacrifice of love, to go overseas to train Christians and help them. Again, we had people that did that with VBS, with our two short-term mission teams. When's the last time that you responded to a plea for help at church, you know, as Sam is striving to fill the various ministries. It's even in your bulletin. There is a spot in your bulletin where Sam puts all of his ministry needs for our children's ministry. When's the last time that out of love and sacrifice and choice, you said, I am going to sacrifice? When's the last time that you heard about someone in this church with a serious need, physical, spiritual, emotional, and you actually did something, you gave sacrificially or you went over there and you prayed with them or counseled them or just sat while they wept. How about on Sunday morning? When's the last time you actively, purposely went out of your way to meet someone who's here for the first time? Can you imagine if all of us in this room decided to go meet someone that we don't know for the first time? Some of you'd be like, wow, these people are a little too friendly. Back off, buddy. That would be amazing. These, this church loves. They, they're, they're going out of their way. They're, they're jumping over chairs to get and, and shake my hand first. That is weird, but it's kind of cool. You know, some of you, you don't need to do another ministry. For some of you, the application may be you're tempted to give up. You're weary. You're doing that ministry. Some of you have been back in these rooms for years. You're like, can I come out Ever? You've been serving and serving and serving in the nursery or other places, setting up chairs. And maybe some of you are tempted to give up. Let the example and expression of God's love in the cross and in the gospel motivate you to excel still more and to love as you have been loved. After all, that's what happened in the early church. Acts chapter 2, you remember Peter preaches that very convicting sermon, and then in verse 37, the people say, what must we do? And they repent. 
and they come to faith in Christ. And then in verse 45 of Acts 2, it records that the people were so cut to the quick by the gospel and the freshness of how God had saved them that they begin to take all their property and sell it and put it all in a pool. And anyone who was in need, they cared for them. Again, I know so many people in this church who are doing that, who do that every week. But some of us, I think we need to grow in this area to be sacrificial in the way we care for each other practically. I mean, the reality is if we as a church are doing this as consistently as God calls us to, these requests should probably never actually get to me as a pastor because you, the body, are taking care of them. Again, I don't know any church where that's happened. That, that is an unrealistic standard. I realize that. But there is a sense where we should be shooting for that. This church cares for people so practically, so immediately, so lovingly. I've never experienced anything like it. Well, the first reason why we should sacrificially love Christians is love is the essence of God. The second is love was revealed by Christ. Let's look at the third and final Found in verse 12, love is the Christian's testimony. Love is the Christian's testimony. Verse 12, John says, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, what is John saying here in verse 12? If we profess Christ, then the proof this is genuine, is that we must love other Christians as God loves us. This is the proof of love. Because the reality is, what does verse 12, the beginning say? No one has beheld God at any time. God has not revealed his full deity to us. In fact, 1 Timothy 1.17 tells us that God is invisible. He's spirit. We know that. But God has chosen to show himself to the world using physical flesh and blood primarily in two ways. Of course, the first is through Christ. We know that. Pastor Ken walked us through that wonderful passage called the Kenosis Passage in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, how Christ took on flesh. God became man. And again, John 1, 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Who is the Word? Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and lived amongst humans. God demonstrated His love to us through Christ. But then secondly, not only has God chosen to show Himself to the world through Christ, but also through you and me, through Christians. Because what does the rest of the verse say? No one has beheld God at any time, but if we love one another... God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. See, we are to reveal the love of God to others, and by doing so, who are we revealing to the world? God in us, the love of God in us. And that's John 13, verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. All men, not just the Christians now, we just stepped out of the church into our community and are they watching church? They are. And what do they see? Because the love of this Christ is either going to be a bright beacon of light that draws some in 
or the hypocrisy of our love will repel them. True Christian fellowship and love within the church is this light. In fact, John says that if we are loving one another in this way with this kind of agape love, reflecting the nature of God's love, because we are born of God and we know God, if that is happening, then God is in us. He abides in us is the word, which means literally God is living in us. It's the relationship. Loving other Christians indicates the reality of God's presence in our life. Again, we know that the moment of our repentance and faith in Christ, when we become a Christian, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. So another way we could say this is God's love is proclaimed in the Bible and proved at the cross, but here it is perfected in the believer. Let me say that again. God's love is proclaimed in the Bible and proved at the cross. But here it is perfected in the believer. And that's exactly what John says. God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Perfected simply means bringing to completion. The idea of progression. Because when we consistently practice love, God's love reaches its intended goal from God, changing us in and through us. The love of God is expressed within the bounds of the church, which then in turn goes where? Out to a watching world. So we are never more like God than when we love others. Spiritual maturity is not measured by how long you've been a member of church, how long you've been a Christian. Your spiritual maturity is not measured by your Bible knowledge or even your level of service in the church. Hey, I serve in seven ministries. How many do you serve in? It's measured by your love. Do you want to know if a Christian is spiritually mature? Look for love. Because men may not be able to see God, but they can see His love moving us to deeds of sacrificial love, which is God's intended goal. How do we know this? Because of Christ's example. Did Christ have a duty in submission to His heavenly Father to go to the cross? Absolutely. But was it also His delight? Yeah. Because the New Testament talks about how for the joy set before him, he endured what? The cross in Hebrews. It wasn't just duty. It wasn't just command. It wasn't just, yes, Lord, may I have another? It was for the joy of his heavenly father. You know, 11 years ago, I had a hard time giving sacrificially. I, I, I can admit that. In the early days of my Christian faith, I struggled with materialism. I mean, I would give, I would do it, but I would do it grudgingly. And then God called us to move overseas to that country of Albania, poor country. And God broke me. God humbled me. Because I saw 
a poor, impoverished spiritual and physical church care for each other in ways I had never seen before. Someone would come into town and the church would start texting each other or Facebook messing each other and say, hey, who, who has a place for this person? And, and they would start coming over and they would literally just say, hey, come into my house, come into my house. Here's my food, here's my, take our bed. There was a house that burned down in the northern part of Albania in the town of Skodra. This house burned down. It was a dear Christian brother, leader in their church up there, the Bible church of, of Skodra. His friend put it out on Facebook, hey, pray for us. Within three weeks, people gave furniture, money, time. They came over. The whole living room of the house had been burned, torched. The community from the whole country literally came up to help them. Who's watching that? Again, Skodra is not predominantly Muslim. It's actually more Catholic. So you have all of these people in that community watching. There's Muslims, there's Catholic, watching this Christian being ministered by the church of Jesus Christ. And what do you think that communicated? We don't love only with word. Words are easy. We love by sacrifice. Nine years I lived in that country, and I can honestly tell you that 95% of the people, Christians that I interacted with, Albanian Christians, told me that they repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone because of the radical change that God did in a friend or family member. 95% of the people I talked to, that's what God used to convert atheistic, secular, Muslim, Orthodox, Catholic Albanians to Christ. Because there is something powerful about radical love. There's something powerful about self-sacrifice and a willingness to take, this is mine, and you don't deserve this, but you know what? I want you to have it. Wow, you have that need? Okay, well, you, you realize this is the consequences of your stupidity, but I'm going to come help you anyway. I mean, sometimes we're tempted to give love, you know, we're like shooting at them as we come to love them. You realize you're an idiot and that's why you're in this mess, but I'll come help you. Whew. And that's true not just for Albania, it's true for here in America. Because the love of God, the agape love of God is powerful witness to the world. Well, by God's grace, through repentance, through biblical change, I'm not the same man today that I was then. Praise God. I'm still growing. I still struggle with the love of things and shoes and other things. But by God's grace, I'm not the same man. That's the point of the book of 1 John. Are you growing? Not are you perfect. The only time you're going to be perfect in love is when you get to heaven, okay? But are you becoming more like Christ? Is the expression and the example of your love, could someone take it and say, yes, I see God in you? Because I promise you, if you begin to, because of your focus on God's sacrifice and love for you and the gospel if you begin to give sacrificially and love sacrificially, you too will be able to say the words of Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give 
than to receive. And that is especially true of love. Well, in conclusion this morning, we've examined three reasons why Christians should sacrificially love one another. Because if God is love and we are of God, then we should love like God. So let me ask you, Christian, how is your spiritual compass this morning? What are you oriented towards? What is your nature responding to? Is it pointing true north to the love of God? Or is it pointing somewhere else? Is the proof of your love evident in your life? And remember, it's not us that you have to prove that to. Who do you have to prove that to? God. We must actively pray and think through specific ways that we can love other Christians. And I just want to give you a personal challenge this morning. I guess this is the counselor in me. I'm going to give you homework. I want you to think of one name. It could be someone in this room. Maybe not. Maybe it's someone you don't particularly like. Maybe it's someone that you're having a hard time forgiving. Maybe it's someone that you don't care for. Maybe it's your enemy. How did Christ tell us to treat those people? Our enemies. Love your enemies? I don't think so. That's what Jesus said. Who is it that you're having a hard time loving? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you have a child that's rebelling. Maybe it's someone from work or a boss. Because we know all of our bosses are perfect, right? I know mine is. I can. (laughs) Who are you struggling to love? And as you reflect on those eight characteristics of God's love, will you prayerfully, before God, ask, God, help me? And then come up with three ways to love them sacrificially this week. Three ways. It could even be, I'm going to start praying for you every day because I don't like you. And I'm going to pray that God changes my heart. Because even here in the church, sometimes we don't like each other, right? Can I get an amen for that? Wait, did he just tell us to praise God that we don't like each other? How will you repent of it if you don't recognize it and acknowledge it? We don't bury the hatchet. We in love go and confess, admit, and reconcile. And then do it. Whatever those three things are that God lays on your heart, choose to love in the way that you have been loved to the praise and glory of God. My prayer for us is that we consider the love of God revealed by Christ that we would grow to love one another as our Heavenly Father has loved us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the only reason that we can have this proof of love in our life is because of your great love. You are love. You have it. You demonstrate it. You give it. And every man, woman, and child in this room who has received Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord, we have tasted and we have seen that it is good, that you have saved us from our wickedness and depravity and sin, and 
You have given us life. What was dead and self-oriented now becomes oriented on you. But Lord, we know there's still that oldness in us, that, that, that flesh, that desire to, to serve self over you. And so we ask and pray, Heavenly Father, humbly that you would grant us grace to do what we know we ought to do. Not merely duty, but Lord, change our hearts so that the delight matches the duty, so that our love does not become hypocritical, external, only on the outside. Let each and every one of us take these principles to heart as we consider your love expressed and demonstrated on our behalf. And may this, your church, for which your son died and shed his blood, may it manifest agape love for your glory, for the sake of unity, and for the sake of the lost who are watching. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.